bit of furniture removal. <clears throat> you might find it useful to have um, Philippians in front of you, or not, if you're calm. <clears throat> I have a question to ask you. Um, people who know me are kind of giggling, going, what's he up to now? Now, this, this quiz question, just one, might reveal, sorry, might reveal um, that I, I'm a, I've got a warped mind. But anyway, you know that anyway. Thank you, sister. Okay, here is the question. What do John Eels, the World Cup winning Australian rugby captain, and Mary Poppins have in common? This is not a joke. It does sound like it, but I promise you it's not. What did John Eels, the World Cup winning Australian rugby captain, and Mary Poppins have in common? <laughs> okay, these people know me too well. <laughs> For those of you who didn't hear, these are some of the clues. This bloke has got a nickname called Nobody, and she's known for being practically perfect. He was so well respected by his colleagues and his fellow players that they nicked him, nicknamed him Nobody because nobody is perfect. And Mary Poppins, well, she is practically perfect in every way. Well, Paul's kind of talking about perfection in this passage a little bit. And one of the things that he wants to say is agreeing about uh, John Eels in a certain way is that nobody's perfect, not even these people. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already been made perfect. Here is a, an earth-shattering truth. Nobody is perfect but Jesus, okay? Nobody is perfect. Turn to the person to your right and say, you're not perfect. <laughs> Turn to the person on the other side and say, you're definitely not perfect. to me and say, Phil, you're not perfect. Lots of people didn't say that. I love you. <laughs> Nobody's perfect. But the thing is, we live in a tension in our minds that we both agree with that and disagree with that. We agree with it whenever we want to cop out of something which has gone wrong. When we've made a mistake, we shrug our shoulders and go, oh, well, Nobody's perfect, but we demand it of other people. Sometimes we demand it of ourselves. Sometimes we say, that person has let us down. They've fallen below perfection, and therefore I'm annoyed at them because nobody's perfect. That's not an excuse. But we also have the burden sometimes that we think we need to be perfect. We need to get it right all the time. So whilst we can nod and agree that nobody's perfect and we use it as an excuse and a cop-out, sometimes we actually believe that. And some of us, I know for a fact, in some areas or others, dwell in perfectionism for any number of reasons. And we might explore a few of those a little bit later on. Not that I've already obtained all this. I've already been made perfect. Well, what is all this? What's, what's he on about? He's talking about this kind of state of perfection and bliss, like some kind of Christian nirvana that he walks around with a halo on his head? No. 
This, in verse 10, is what he wants to. I want to know Christ. He has to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering to become like him in his death and somehow to the resurrection. This is what he's saying he's not quite there yet with. This is what he's not fully obtained. This is what he's not been made perfect about. His desire is that he wants to know Jesus. I warned you, this question's not going away. He wants to know Jesus because that's the way that you come to know Jesus. How you come to know Jesus leads you to becoming like Jesus. And so your desire is to be perfect, not because you want to be perfect, but because you want to be like Jesus. But he says, I'm not there yet. The thought is perhaps that there was a cult of perfectionism that was growing around the Philippian church, even centered around Paul as his followers kind of thought, Paul's made it. He's perfect. We should, oh wow, worship him almost. And he's putting people right and said, listen, I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect. I am a work in progress. If, anyone, uh, if you've been in my office, I've got a number of pictures on my wall. I meant to bring it through. I kept, forgot last service and I forgot today. It's a chalk drawing by Lara Bundock. She gave it to me over a decade ago. And it's a picture, a chalk drawing, of a semi-finished statue that's being sculpted. And it says, it kind of conveys the image that we're still works in progress, we're incomplete. The thing is about whether we are works in progress is whether we have banned God from the work site. <laughs> and we said, I'm just a work in progress. And you've told God to down his tools. And you've locked up the building site. Works in progress, because we use that nobody's perfect, I'm a work in progress. God's not finished with me yet as a cop-out, as an excuse, and anything goes. But Paul says, I'm not perfect, but I don't consider myself to have taken hold of it yet. I'm not there, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. Really? Just forget the past? Delete your internet history? I'm sure there's lots of reasons why people do that. Delete my history? Just forget about it? Forget what was behind? Is that what Paul's trying to say? Actually, no, he's not saying that. The Greek word has got far too many vowels for me to try and pronounce, but the Greek word has the, conveys the idea of not just forgetting as in, oh, I'm sure I've, I remembered something I've forgotten now. It's not that. It's about knowing what is behind and choosing to look beyond those events, to look over, to almost neglect to go beyond. Because Paul's not saying forget your past, otherwise he's contradicting himself. In verse 5 and 6, he comes out with a list of things, qualifications, about him being a Hebrew of the Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin, faultless in his Pharisaicalism, if that's a word. He, he knows about his past. It's really important. He studied under a guy called Gamaliel. Gamaliel was a walking Oxford University of Phariseeism, if that's a word. He was the top dog, and Paul, Saul was one of his pupils. He was well qualified. He wasn't neglecting all that training. He wasn't neglecting the fact that he was Jewish, the Jewish of the Jews, but also that he was a Roman citizen. He wasn't neglecting that, and he certainly wasn't neglecting the fact that he met Jesus on a road to Damascus one day. It fueled who he was. He's not talking about forgetting everything in that sense. What he's saying is don't live in the past or allow the past to dictate your present or to dictate your future. That's what he's saying. Because too many of us do. 
U2 wrote a song, one of, um, one of my favorite albums. It's an album called um, All That You Can't Leave Behind. And there's a song on it that Bono wrote about a guy called Michael Hutchins from the band NXS. And he says it's like an argument between him and Michael Hutchins. And, he's, and the song is called Stuck in a Moment That You Can't Get Out Of. Sorry? It's a great song, isn't it? I could ask you to sing it, but I'm not going to. It's an amazing song, stuck in a moment that you can't get out of. This diagram is one that we've encountered with a number of people a number of times. Your life is going along, but something, some habit, some event, something, some point stops you in your progress, in life, in your faith, in your relationships, and you just keep on going around and revisiting it again and again and again. And you're stuck in a moment that you can't get out of. I've done a couple of funerals recently, and just these last two that I did, and in both the tributes, there was something which was, I mean, very, very different people, but the, there was one comment that was made about them is that at some point in their lives, they got stuck. These were really honest tributes. They weren't bad. One person, because of a trauma and a situation, they had a breakdown, and they essentially didn't move on from 1984. They just thought the modern world was just too much for them. I mean, they lived for a good number of years, but they just stopped living in 1984. And a woman who lost her husband in 1967 just passed away the other day. But they were saying that she stopped enjoying life in 1967. She stopped because she got stuck in a moment that she couldn't get out of. How familiar are we to that? Maybe in our own lives, maybe you even now are thinking, I know exactly what he's talking about. I'm going to pretend I didn't hear. (laughs) Stuck in a moment that can't get out of. Well, in no way am I suggesting, or is Paul suggesting, oh, well, just forget about it, move on. No. Sometimes we need to deal with things, but what he's saying is don't let that stop you going forward. Don't let it stop you in your relationship with Jesus. And there's a number of different ways, but we're going to look at two ways, a negative and a positive ways that we allow ourselves to get stuck. The first thing is don't let yourself become a Miss Havisham. Okay? You know Miss Havisham, don't you, from Great Expectations? You know she was stuck in a moment she just could not get out of. It could be that you're like that because of guilt, of events that you've done in your past, choices you've made, hurts that have been inflicted upon you by others, unforgiveness that you're harboring against someone else. Remembering forgiveness is not about, oh, well, never mind, forget about it. It's about choosing not to be affected by the repercussions of that that impact, of that event. It's a choice to move forward. Bad experiences. You just think, I can't repeat that again, so I won't risk it. Internal and external dialogues. What I'm talking about there are the lies that we believe. The lies that we believe about ourselves that have actually been told to us, and we've believed them, and we've not let them go. You're an eight-year-old child, and you're told by your mom, your dad, or your grandparents, oh, why can't you just be like your sister, your brother, your cousin, your neighbor? They're much better. They're much more mature. They're much more intelligent. You'll never amount to anything. Why don't you work harder? Why aren't you prettier? Why aren't you thinner? Why aren't you cleverer? Why don't you pray more? And you may be 50 years from that comment, but it is still circulating in your head. And either it's making you feel bad or it's fueling you obsessively to work against it. Either which way, you're stuck in a moment you can't get out of. Fear of change. Poor teaching of the church. It's scary how many people we've had to speak to over the years who've come from places in their lives where the church has let them down by the teaching they've given. And they've thought, I'm not being healed because I've clearly not got enough faith. 
And that's the message they are told. In the midst of their illness, their depression, their suffering, they're told by ever so well-meaning Christians, well, you clearly don't believe God enough. Stick the knife in a little bit more, and they still are stuck in that moment, which leads to cynicism and bitterness, shame and insecurity. You're stuck in a moment, and you can't get out of it. Maybe that's you. Maybe it's been you for the past 60 years. Or you could be Peter Pan. (laughs) Peter Pan, the boy who didn't want to grow up. When things were good and life was great, and we don't want things to change, we like being a kid, don't we? We're complacent. We're fine. We're comfortable in our faith and our life. Everything's all right. Or maybe even an arrogance. Well, I know it's all anyway. Nothing's new under the sun. I've read the Bible back to front, upside down, and from a balloon. Uh, I've got a simplistic faith, perhaps. Now, notice I didn't say simple faith. This is not against childlike faith. This is simplistic, which is the whole, Jesus loves me, this I know, and everything's going to be okay. That can actually be a faith-filled statement, or more often than not, it's simplistic. Fearsome, or fearing to look at some of the harder things of life. Resting on laurels. Do you remember whenever I was 17, all those mission trips I did, all those people I led to Christ, all the prayers I prayed? Oh, it was brilliant. It was 60 years ago. I haven't done anything since, but it was brilliant when I was 17. Rest on your laurels. Old experiences are enough. I don't need to move on. I've done my bit. Jump to the bottom. I've done my bit. It's time for someone else to do theirs. It's easier to not go beyond the Peter Panness of our faith. Our priorities are different. You know, whenever I was 17 or, or 8, or whenever even I was 20, I didn't have the mortgage and the responsibilities and the jobs and the children. So therefore, my priorities have changed, so I, I'll just stay where I am. I'd rather have a bigger house than a bigger faith. Our motivation maybe is absent. Do you know what? I know for a fact there's some people like this that have told me, I just can't be bothered. I'm too tired. I'll just stay where I am, reading my lion children's Bible, because that will do me. Or maybe it's just too familiar. You've been around church for too long, and you're thinking, oh, I've been there, done that, bought the t-shirt several times over. I'm done. Stuck in a moment you won't get out of. You refuse to get out of because it's easier to stay there. It's nice to stay there. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from this guy, Oswald Chambers. He, his writings were put together in a book called My Utmost for His Highest. It's a brilliant devotional. If you're looking for a devotional, avoid it like the plague. <laughs> it's far too challenging. I start it and go, right, that's enough. Go away. It's brilliant, but this is one of my favorite things he ever said. Beware of harking back to what you once were when God wants you to be something you've never been. I've used it so many times in my own life in in sermons before. Stop harking back to what you once were, whether that's positive or negative, whether you're a victor or a victim. Stop harking back to what you once were when God wants you to be something you've never been before. It says His mercies are new every morning, but yet we want to talk about the ones that were last Tuesday or last week or last month or last decade. His mercies are new every day. He wants you to be something you've never been before, and yet we're stuck in a moment that we can't get out of, or stuck in a moment that we won't get out of. 
So Paul's response, we'll get to in a moment. Um, he says that he pushes on because if you don't push on, if you stay like this for too long, you stagnate. There's been a number of people over the years, I've experienced it myself, where they say, I'm just feeling so distant from God and my faith doesn't feel very good. And they've reached a place of stagnation. Ponds become stagnant for a couple of reasons. One, there's no water coming in and no water going out. It just stands there. And it becomes putrid. It becomes dirty, clogged up, lifeless, ugly, boring. It attracts flies and vermin. It's no use to you and it's no use to me. We stagnate. It also stagnates if water comes in but has no way to go out. The Dead Sea is like that. That's why it's rubbish to, to kind of drink and do other things. The, the water comes into it, it just stays, nowhere to go. We are, we are designed in order to have flowing coming in and flowing going out. Earlier this week, um, I went with a couple of guys who I trained with, and um, we went to one of, their, uh, one of their places on the Lynn Peninsula in North Wales. It's a beautiful place. And uh, I'd only been once before, but we, ex- we explored it a bit more. And my friend Jonathan took us on a walk um, it took us on a massive walk. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> but we, were, we walked alongside the Glaslyn River. And here's a picture of the Glaslyn River. I took one. This isn't it. My one was better. But um, <laughs> we walked along the Glaslyn River, and there was fresh life everywhere. The water was flowing in from the mountains. Trust me, I saw the rain fall on the mountain and start to come down the hill. It came down the hills and into the water, and the water just flowed through this river, and it took, uh, there was, there was uh, life around it. There were trees, there were bushes, there were, it was bubbling over rocks, there were fish. There were just, it was vibrant. You could, you could taste the freshness of the air around it, and it flowed to where we were, and it flowed off to the sea because it came in, it did its stuff, and it went out again. It was constantly flowing if you know about the water cycle. And there was fresh life, stuff coming in, stuff going out. That's what we were made to do, to grow in the Lord and to reach out to others. It's not about being perfect. It's about wanting to be like Jesus. He happens to be perfect, so a happy coincidence. It's not about you achieving a perfectionism. It's by wanting to be like Jesus. The only way you get to be like Jesus is to want to get to know him. So Paul says this, and so I'm straining towards what is ahead. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. I press on. I press on. It's about wanting to grow and to know. This is where intention matters, where the thought really does count. We may get it wrong, but if our hearts are to be like Jesus, we're on the right track. So in this race, because the word that that Paul uses is, is a sense of reaching for the goal, stretching out to the goal line, to the to the end of the race. Stretching out to reach it, to win the goal, to win the prize. Remember, the goal and the prize are different. The goal is to reach the end of our lives on earth called home by a loving father. 
That's our goal, to live a life full of Jesus. That's our goal, to get to the end. But the prize, I don't know what you want your prize to be in heaven, whether it's a a laurel leaf, whether it's a gold medal or a gold crown. I'm telling you sincerely what I want to hear. I want to walk in, I want to hear God say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That's what I want to hear. And that's the prize I want to go for. It's what the prize Paul wanted to go for. The goal and the prize press on. I want to tell you a story. Um, it's one that you'll be really familiar with, I'm sure, because they made a movie of it. It's a story of, let's see, of this guy, Eric Little. I'm sure lots of people have seen the movie Chariots of Fire. Brilliant movie. Um, but I'm going to tell you the story anyway because <clears throat> it's, worth, it's worth telling. Eric Little, <clears throat> he was born in 1902 in China to parents who were missionaries there. He and his um, brother were, were schooled in a missionary school over here, a school particularly for missionary children. And in 1921, he went to Edinburgh University with his brother, and he excelled at the time in rugby and athletics. A couple of years later, in 1924, it was the Olympic Games in Paris, and he was being selected for his best race, which was the 100-meter dash. But as you probably know from the movie, he wouldn't run in the heats on a Sunday, and so it created a bit of a panic. So instead, he was um, put forward for the 400 meters, even though his time was pretty average at best. He was an average 400-meter runner. So he went to the Paris Games, and he took part in the 200 meters sprint as well, and he was beaten into bronze place for that one. Then it came to the final of the 400 meters, the one that he was average at. Before the race, a U.S. team masseur came up to him with a piece of paper on which were written the words of 1 Samuel 2.30, which said, those who honor me, I will honor. So the The person started the race, and he shot out. He was in the outside lane, which meant as he was running, he couldn't see the competitors behind him. So he just pelted it. It was a rubbish technique. He just went hammer and tong from the very, very start. His head went back, his mouth opened, and he strained, even from the start, for the finish line. Horatio Fitch from the USA was one of those who was running behind him. And he was gaining on him on the home straight. And one final sprint from Fitch, and he would have had it. But Fitch recounts this. He said, Little threw his head further back. He gathered himself and shot forward. Little took the gold medal 0.8 seconds ahead of Fitch. And in doing so, he set a new 400-meter world record. He went home a hero, carried aloft on shoulders through the streets of Edinburgh. And that's where the movie ends. And that's, that would be a good illustration in itself, wouldn't it, about striving to the end. But, but here's what goes on. In 1925, just one year after that Olympic triumph, Little went as a missionary back to China. And he worked there for a number of years. He married, had a few children. In 1943, China entered the war. He'd already sent off his family, but when they entered the war, Eric Little was interned in uh, a prisoner of war camp. 
And in this camp, he became the leader of it. He organized the camp. He helped the elderly, the infirm. He taught the young. He arranged games. And despite food and medication, um, was a, it was in short supply. And possibly because of that, during his time there, he developed an inoperable brain tumor, which eventually took his life on the 21st of February, 1945, five months before the liberation. In 2005, in remembrance of Eric Little, a wreath was laid um, at a plaque at the concentration camp. But in 2008, the Chinese authorities released some information about Little, and evidence emerged that during his time in the prisoner of war camp, he was given the opportunity to leave as part of a prisoner exchange, but he'd refused, and he gave his place to a pregnant woman in order that she could be free, and he spent the rest of his days on this earth in that camp. Here is a person who pressed on towards the goal, and it wasn't just to get a medal and a record. That guy's story tells us he pressed on to be like Jesus right to the end. That's the hero that we are hearing about. He's called, he's called, we're called to be, we're called to press on. We're called to press on because it's not easy. Anyone who's done a long hike, a long run, I know there's a number of long distance runners in, in, in this place here. There's a lot of people who do long distance shopping as well. I know that it's a hard task but you have to press on to reach the goal. You have to keep on going. Jesus never promised it would be easy. He said it'd be worth it. Press on, push on, and you'll reach a place of maturity. It says all of us then who are mature should take a view of such things, that we're pressing on. We're not perfect, but we're pressing on to the goal to know Jesus more, to be like Him. That's maturity. Unfortunately, when we read maturity, we often read boring, <laughs> mature, sensible. I used to get this in my report card when I was growing up. Um, you know, Philip, because, you know, posh, Philip is um, a very mature student, which is not bad when you're eight. Um, <laughs> and I used to think that's really good. Now I realize, now I've been trained as a teacher, that's shorthand for boring, <laughs> sensible, does everything right. That's not what Paul's about. We are called to be mature. We're called to be mature. Paul's desire is for everyone in Philippi to be mature followers of Jesus. Our desire, we've mentioned this a few times, is for every one of us to be mature followers of Jesus. And what do we mean by that? Well, it's about the acorn and the oak. The acorn and the oak. This is about growth and development and maturity. What are the marks of maturity that Paul kind of highlights? First of all, maturity knows it's unfinished. Maturity is, part of that is knowing that you're not the done deal. Maturity is continued growth. It's not, right, I'm done now, I've learned it all, that's it. It's continued growth. Maturity is faithful longevity. This is not about age, okay? This is not if you are 63, you became a Christian last year, you're a mature Christian. That's not how it works. You could be 15 and be a more mature Christian than a 63-year-old, okay? 
This is about faithful longevity. It's about experience, not just that you've done stuff, but an experience of God, a reality of God. It's about obedience of what God calls us to. It's about resilience because it is tough. It's tough being a Christian who wants to follow the way of Christ. You need to have some resilience, some backbone, but mainly maturity is about fruitfulness. You talk about a tree or an organism being mature when it is ready to reproduce. That's when it's mature. When the acorn becomes the oak, and the oak will produce more acorns. It's about fruitfulness is maturity, not just about some kind of seniority complex. Maturity brings with it a responsibility. Brings with it a responsibility. If any of you look carefully at um, the cupboard in the kitchen, which has got all the mugs in it, there's a, lots of them are white. Some have, do you know him, written on them, because we got more of those. But there's one or two which have got a picture of an egg. They've got a picture of an egg, and I want to ask you this question. Are you an egg? Are you? People go on, that's a trick question, don't want to answer it. <laughs> are you an egg? No, yes, don't know. It's a trick question, I'm not going to answer. Or Phil can't spell. <laughs> yeah, yes I can. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. Are you an egg? You certainly should be. We are called to be examples. Paul was an example. And he said, take note of other people who are setting the example. Remember, he's, he's couched this in saying, nobody's perfect. Get that into your thick skulls, but yet follow examples of people who are trying. Are you an egg? Who is your egg? Who is your example? Who are you seeking to follow as an exemplar of the Christian faith? Someone who's been there a bit longer, has a little bit more about them. Not that they're perfect, not that you're going to become a carbon copy of them, but that you're just seeking their experience. Do you want to grow? Sometimes we think, oh, I do, but you know, I just can't put the effort in. Do you want to grow? Go and ask someone who you know and respect and say, listen, will you be my egg? If they haven't been part of the sermon, they'll probably go, what are you on about? <laughs> Lisa and I have recently been taking this really seriously. And we've taken a few people on board intentionally to disciple them because we recognize that we have a certain level of maturity. We are a certain example. Now, us polite British think, well, that's awfully arrogant of you. No, it's because we've been around the block a little bit. You should be able to be an example to others as well. It doesn't mean you're perfect. It means you're willing to help someone else grow. So we've taken a few people and we're working alongside them. I've got a few guys and we're going to meet pretty regularly. And they're not in crisis. They just want to get to know Jesus better. And they want someone to help them. Are you prepared to be an egg? Are you prepared to ask someone to be your egg? Because we are called to make disciples. This is part of the discipleship process. We, um, I have to be honest, we've been having a great time at Alpha recently. We've got a great number. It's a great buzz. It's fab. But I've been incredibly reluctant to run the Alpha course for the past few years. And one of the reasons is because we've not been ready to disciple people who come to know Jesus. 
we've presumed if you come to know Jesus, just come on to the church, it'll happen by osmosis. It doesn't. So, what characteristics of maturity and example are we looking for? Someone who's faithful. Someone who's just kept going. Someone who's experienced. That's not someone who's mega experienced, who's got seven degrees, but someone who just loved Jesus for a long time. Knowledgeable. It's not that you know the whole Bible back to front and you know how many chapters are in Amos. Not about that, but it's about the fact I, I know the Bible a bit. I know some of you know the Bible really well. I know some of you know the Bible appallingly. What are you going to do about it? Because if you know it really well, trust me, you'll be able to know it more. And it's not about knowing the book, it's about knowing the author. Are you obedient to God's call? Are you committed? to knowing Jesus more yourself? And are you committed to, for others to know and to grow in Him? Are you aware that you're not complete? Are you aware that you don't know it all? Because whenever we challenge you saying, could you be an example? There are two responses. The first one is, I could never be an example to anybody. Oh, no, 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 no. Because you believe some of those lies, those internal, external dialogues, I've been a Christian for 50 years, but I could never be an example. Nonsense! You're believing some lies. The other way is slightly more comfortable, which is, <laughs> of course I could be an example for others. <laughs> In fact, form an orderly cue. <laughs> I would say the first response is more Jesus-like, and the other one's more dangerous. Because the thing that predicates all of this is that I'm not perfect, and I know I'm not, but I know I want to get there. If you identify with any of those, all of those, if you think, yeah, that describes me a little bit, then you, my friends, could become a disciple-ear. <laughs> this has come, this was during the Do You Know Him stuff, and I realized that we can't do it all that the church's responsibility is to disciple people. And so my vision, my heart, my plan off the back of Do You Know Him across other churches, our heart, our vision for this place is that we have a bunch of people who are disciplers. It was disciplers, but it was a misprint, but I thought it was kind of cool. <laughs> people who are prepared to say, I'm not perfect, but I'm happy to walk with someone for a period of time, three months, six months, nine months, 12 months, whatever. I'm happy to get alongside them, to be given material, and we'll walk through it together, just to read the Gospels together, to pray together semi-regularly. I'm willing to do that. Or maybe you're going, I need a disciple here. And you come and say, listen, I need someone. And we say, okay, let's try and do a cello block and match you up with someone. Because our intention is to be like Jesus. You are not perfect. Please believe that, both positively and negatively. You're, you're not perfect, so don't just let yourself off the hook, but accept that you're not perfect. But don't be stuck in a moment that you can't or won't get out of. Don't be a Miss Havisham, and don't be a Peter Pan. Instead, and if you know where my brain goes, you'll know what I'm going to say. Instead, be an egg. Amen.